of Jonah's prayer. Verse 2, we read these words. Called out to the Lord in my distress. Oh, I bet he did. Can you imagine? In the middle of the Mediterranean Sea, having left the port of Joppa, on your way to Spain, a mighty journey into the west, thrown overboard, and there with waves and with wind, the likes of a storm that maybe they had never seen before on the Mediterranean, the moment that Jonah hits the surface of that water, it must have been something like a spiritual splash in the face, something of a coming to his senses. As you this morning in a very drowsy You come to the end of your bed, get up and walk to the sink and splash water on your face to begin to feel alive. It's almost as if God, through the ordained means of the water, begins to wake Jonah up as he calls out into distress. A man who would have been fighting feverishly the waves, a man who would have been swirling around in the currents, If he was like me, looking around for some of the cargo that had just been thrown out of the boat that we were talking about in chapter 1, something of which to help him to float, but of course nothing is found. Jonah, hit by one wave, keeps himself above the water, but then surprised and blindsided by another and immediately goes under, getting a mouthful of water as he comes up gasping for breath. Isn't that the picture that's given to us? Look at verse 3. The flood surrounds me. All your waves and your billows, they pass over me. Uh, Eventually, you know this experience from those of you who fought waves in the ocean for a period of time or may have found yourself in the middle of a large body of water seeking to swim out of it. Your body begins to give way as you fight its currents. And all of a sudden, your head begins to be pulled under and you don't have the strength to be able to your body up and you begin to drift below into the current going further and further down. Listen to verse 5. The waters closed in over me, notice, to take my life. The deep surrounded me and notice the vegetation, the weeds were wrapped about my head as he falls to the roots of the mountains. Oh, it's right. Jonah is falling to the very bottom of the Mediterranean sea floor. He's not merely hanging out at the surface as my young mind as a child liked to think. That as soon as Jonah hit the water, here came the great fish coming out of the water, seizing him upon the surface, slurping him up almost like a coke through a straw. Well, that's not the picture that's given to us here. This is a Jonah who for a very lengthy period of time sought to maintain his safety and his health and his life at the very top of the shore of the, of the sea, but ultimately he fell to the bottom. This is a man whom the Lord is systematically removing every single prop that he would have to save himself. That's what is happening in this text is that Jonah is learning what it means to have nothing by which to save you. Nothing by which to be rescued. To be, as it were, at the very end of yourself. This is the spiritual lesson that is being taught in this text, is that Jonah is having to despair of his every competency, despair of his every ability, despair of his strength. 
He's floating down as his lungs undoubtedly begin to fill up with water. He knows and feels this is indeed the end. Look at the way he describes it there in verse 6. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. This is a man who has lost hope even in the midst of his breathless petition. This is a man who describes this experience in verse 2 as being in the very belly of Sheol. That word Sheol is a term that's used throughout the Old Testament to describe the place of the dead, but it's most commonly a term that is used to describe a place where the dead are in captivity. A place where the dead are under the judgment or the chains of their condemnation. Jonah uses this word alongside the image of being imprisoned at those bottom lands by which to indicate this is a man who's not merely worried about his physical life. He's a man who's worried about his spiritual soul. You you know what it is like to realize that you're far from the Lord and then be put in a situation where maybe your life is, is going to be taken from you and you're concerned, Lord, have I made amends with you? Have I lived a repentant and faithful life in the way that you've called me? Or does my life hang in the balance? Jonah must have had these discussions internally with his own heart as he's floating to the bottom of the Mediterranean Sea, for he knows that what has fallen upon him is the consequences of his own sin. Will his final breaths be taken in rebellion to the consequences of not answering God's call? It's a scary thought. And it's one that leaves a very sort of shuddering soberness within the soul. And yet we can see very clearly that as all this would have been racing through Jonah's mind, God has a plan for Jonah. He has a future. He's mapped out his days and it is not to become, uh, to perish at the bottom of the sea, never to be seen or heard again. But instead, he has what we might call here a delivering discipline. You see, this is what we have seen from the very heart of God from the very beginning with regards to the prophet of Jonah. Had he not sent the storm in Jonah chapter 1, would Jonah have been obstructed to go to Tarshish? No. Had had God not allowed the lot to cast to Jonah for all of the sailors to realize that he was the one who was responsible for this particular storm, humanly speaking? No. And would we not now in this moment as he sinks to the bottom of the Mediterranean Sea, do we not see that God in all of this is exercising a discipline of Jonah? He's unmaking Jonah in order to remake Jonah according to his glorious grace. That's right, his discipline is not for destruction. His discipline is for deliverance. His discipline is for deliverance. He loves those whom he disciplines. That's what he tells us in the word. His discipline is not for our ultimate harm. It is for our ultimate healing. That's what our discipline is for. We must remember that God does not wound in order to harm. He wounds in order to heal. That's a remarkable difference between God and the enemies who throw darts at us. This is an expression of God's love. Do you see 
It's just like when a parent sees a child going in the direction that they ought not and they know that his or her soul needs to be shaped in the pathway of God's grace and commands. They discipline that heart. They discipline that life. They put it in the rigors of the narrow way of the word and they do so for the purpose that that child's heart would be held captive to God. You see, sin and its kisses are pleasant. But in the end, it leads to unsuspecting destruction. While God and his wounds are our ultimate cure that lead us in the path of everlasting. That's what this passage is teaching us. That even though discipline for a little while, as the writer Hebrews tells us, is painful, it ultimately bears the harvest of righteousness. And isn't that what we see here with Jonah? Jonah the once prophet running from the presence of the Lord is now calling out to God as he runs out of words, dipping to the bottom of the Mediterranean Sea. You see, this is what one scholar called the wounding kindness of God. This is God in his corrective measures, his course corrective measures. Though I have no textual proof of this, I I tend to believe that this This great fish, whatever great fish that it is, as it swallows Jonah, it backtracks, going away from Tarshish and ultimately spitting up Jonah somewhere on a seashore very close to Nineveh. You see, God has his own ways of redirecting us, doesn't he? If we won't at first listen to the path of which he outlines, he often will cause such obstacles and hindrances and barriers to the path that we want to go that he hems us into the narrow way. That's his kindness. That's his love to us. Jonah actually winds up seeing that in this glorious prayer. And it's no, it's no surprise that at the moment of which this fish swallows up Jonah... And the Jonah begins to realize that he has a place at which he can dwell at the bottom of the Mediterranean Sea and that God is delivering him even in the midst of this discipline. It's not surprising that Jonah's first response is prayer. Now, if you think back with me, it's very odd that Jonah has not prayed up till now. It's very odd. When he gets the call of God to go to Nineveh, And he knows that Nineveh is a wicked place of which he might be destroyed. Wouldn't it be appropriate for him to typically pray for the fruitfulness of God's ministry and for the safety of his servant as he goes? It would certainly be appropriate for him to pray. But of course, Jonah had no intentions of going to Nineveh, and so he didn't pray with regards to the work that he'd been called to. In the storm, isn't it remarkable in the midst of the storm where everybody on board and their life is being threatened? We hear nothing of Jonah praying. We hear the sailors praying calling out to their idols, asking their gods to intercede. But for Jonah, Jonah is strangely silent. The man who has come with the voice of God, the prophet of God, has no voice of which to speak with God. But here, we see Jonah begin to pray. And it's in the midst of God's answer to his breathless and maybe even wordless petitions that God begins to deliver him and he begins to usher thanksgiving into the presence of the Lord right there at the bottom of the Mediterranean Sea. Look at what he says, verse 1. You heard my call. You heard my call. 
I didn't hear your call when you had called me, but you heard my call. What graciousness, what remarkable rescue, what tremendous deliverance. Verse 6, you heard my voice and notice you brought my life up from the pit. Language that's often used of death and hell. Condemnation language. You brought me up from the pit, O Lord my God. And then look at verse 8 and verse 9. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, I will sacrifice to you what I have vowed will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. It's a beautiful commendation, a beautiful model of what praise and thanksgiving ought to look like when God delivers us and rescues us from harm. Isn't it particularly marvelous when the Lord saves you from the consequences of your foolishness? I always find I'm deeply humbled in the moments where I realize, oh wait, I have made this bed, and yes, I am supposed to sleep in it, and it is terrible. And God says, no, I have provided something better for you. I have provided something greater for you. Yes, I'm not going to make you reap what it is that you have sown. I'm going to deliver you out of it and deliver you even out of the consequences of it. It's an amazing gift of the Lord. He sees the rescue. But what's remarkable about it is that there are things in this prayer that Jonah doesn't say that actually have bearing upon the unfolding of Jonah in Jonah chapter 3 and chapter 4 that are noteworthy that teach us this about the prophet, that change is slow, that it takes all of us a really long time, but God doesn't give up. You see, the the commending of Jonah's praise and thanksgiving for his rescue can only be shared in light of the glaring omission of any sign of confession and repentance in this prayer. Did you notice that? It's nowhere to be found. Not not one whisper of contrition. Not one hint of confession. Not even a murmur of repentance. The, The entirety of the prayer is actually about God's actions. It has Jonah as an entirely passive, almost victim sounding. Listen to verse 3. You cast me into the deep. Wait just a minute. It is true that God in his sovereignty declared for the casting of Jonah into the deep. But don't you think Jonah played a little role? Notice verse three, verse 4. I am driven away from your sight. I seem to remember you running from him. I seem to remember distinctively in the last chapter that you're fleeing from the presence of the Lord. It is your waves, it is your billows that overtake me. It is not the consequences of my sin coming to roost. It's it's almost as if Jonah is a victim of these circumstances. It's outside of his control. There's nothing he can do with it. Surely God is sovereign. That's a strong note here within the prayer of Jonah. He realizes the power of God and there's nothing that he can do to thwart God's hand. But there's also no mention of Jonah's willful disobedience to the call of God and that he necessarily should receive the consequences that he experienced here in this passage. One scholar put it this way, Jonah glosses over any personal responsibility or his brush with death. He instead focuses upon the agency of everyone else but himself. 
Now, lest you think I'd be too hard on Jonah in this moment, that he's just, he was just a slight oversight within his prayer. We all have slight oversights within our prayer, things that we should say and don't say. I find it quite remarkable in verses 8 and 9 that he contrasts himself to the wicked idolaters. Notice what he says in verses 8 and 9. But those who pay regard to worthless or vain idols forsake the steadfast love of God, but I with voice of thanksgiving sacrifice to you. Really? Like, like Jonah, you mean forsaking God's will and doing it your way instead was not a sign of self-idolatry? You, you mean you're, you're different from the sailors? You're different from the Ninevites? Jonah, let me tell you something. The sailors were just converted. You know that because you were dipping deep into the consequences of your sin under God's discipline in that moment. But they were sacrificing to the Lord and have just made vows to Him. They have just been converted and called upon His steadfast love. Jonah has an us and them in this prayer. Very similar to the kind of thing we see in Luke chapter 14 with the Pharisee and the publican. Lord, I thank you that I am not like other men. Especially this here tax collector. I give sacrifice and thanksgiving to the Lord. I will pay my vows. There is an irony that is built into the text because it's the very language that is used of the sailors who have just been converted. Did they not sacrifice? And did they not pay their vows? That's exactly what we're told in verse 16 of chapter 1. Jonah thinks he's coming off Almost in a self-congratulatory manner. I must be something pretty big if God will rescue me at the bottom of the Mediterranean Sea. Rather than thinking how wonderful is the love of God that he would come and rescue, as John Newton notes, a wretch like me. There's not a note of humility here in this prayer. There's not a sense of culpability that's in the mindset of Jonah. He is one who has put himself as distinct from and separate from those who are sinners in the world. How many times do we do this? It's particularly a plague among religious folks like us. The ones who might grace their presence each week in, I don't know, a little chapel in downtown Franklin. That we do all of the religious things, we do all of the good things, and we begin to think of those sinners out there in the world somewhere poor souls as they are. When the realization is that God is pressing into us through the power of his word and saying, it's not the poor little sinners out there. It's not the us and them. We're in this together, friends. It's the idolater in here and the idolater out there. It's the sinner in need of grace in here and the sinner in need of grace out there. There is nothing different from you this morning who came into the presence of the Lord endeavoring after his grace and confession of sin to the person who woke up this morning and is right now sitting before the morning news. There is no difference between your sin and your soul as opposed to them save the deliverance and the rescue of God. Of which, by the way, you had nothing to do with. That he, out of his mere good pleasure, expressed his love to you. You feel the tone of humility, the note of, uh, the note of emptying, the note of increasing capacity for the love and the grace of God, it seems to be missing here in Jonah's prayer. And, and it's not merely an omission. Because if you actually look 
at the end of Jonah, which we'll spend more time with in the next couple of weeks. But in Jonah chapter 4, I want you to be reminded that Jonah's heart has never been aligned with God from the very beginning of this book. God is going to the nations to save those wretched Ninevites. But Jonah wants to have nothing to do with it, and he even wants to have nothing to do with it after they're converted. At the end of Jonah chapter 3, after the Ninevites repent and they come to a knowledge of Yahweh serving the God of the Old Testament, the King of Israel, as they submit themselves to the Lord, you would think Jonah would be like, I'm amazing. Look at my evangelistic capability. The Lord has come and he has redeemed for himself a people from Nineveh. This is remarkable. And this is what we read. It displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. In other words, Jonah is saying, I knew you were going to do this. so why I didn't want to come. Doesn't really sound like a heart that's aligned with the heart of God. A man who has lived in open repentance, turning from sin unto the Lord, aligning himself to the missionary heart of our God. It sounds like a man at war with God, resistant to God. It's why some scholars, I think humorously, I'm not entirely certain, say this is the reason in verse 10 that we read these words. And the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. That the Lord's appointment in speaking to the fish was that the fish was so tired of hearing the hypocrisy of Jonah. He was so sick of the duplicity of Jonah. It's like, get this man out of here. Now is the fish's conduct. Now I'm not ready to stake my claim on that interpretation. But I will say it's persuasive to me. It's plausible that in the midst of this, Jonah has not yet seen the real redemption of the Lord, he's not yet learned what it means to genuinely repent. Listen, we're not much different, are we? Let's don't go thinking we're superior to Jonah and fall into his same mistake. It takes all of us a really long time. Change is slow. But God is patient. He doesn't give up on us. You see, that's the story. (laughs) Let me just tell you. Let me me show you God's grace for a minute. You, You want to see God's grace? God's grace is this. That Jonah, who gives praise and thanksgiving to God, but is unwilling to confess and repent of his sin, gives us a mixed bag prayer, and God answers it anyway. That's the grace of God. The grace of God is that he doesn't say, well, Jonah, when you get your prayer right, then I'll answer it. Jonah, when you perfectly pray as you ought and you have clarity with regards to the darkness of your sin and your lack of repentance, then I'll answer you. No, that's not what God does. God knows knows that if he waits for us to pray aright, that day will never come. For we must learn not merely to repent of our sins, but to repent of our righteousness. Friends, we've never prayed a prayer that was not in need of the grace of God. The remarkableness is that God loves us in the midst of it. He doesn't forsake us. He doesn't give up on us. 
He sees us all the way to the end. In fact, here's what's even more profound to me and maybe more shocking in some ways is that we move from this delivering discipline of God to this glaring omission in Jonah's prayer to an unlikely picture of the gospel is that Jesus in Matthew chapter 12 actually takes the story of Jonah and the story of the fish and you know what he says? He says, that's a story about me. I want you to get this. He takes an unrepentant, runaway prophet and he says, I want you to see how that's connected to my story of what it is that I've come to do. He takes a fish in the Mediterranean Sea who swallows up this Jonah like fish food. And he says, I want you to see that that's really close to the story of the gospel that I'm telling as I come here to earth to rescue you from your sins. In Matthew chapter 12, we read these words from Jesus as he speaks to the scribes and the Pharisees. He says, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given it except the sign of the prophet of Jonah. For just as Jonah, notice, was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Now what Jesus is saying here is he's saying that story about Jonah being swallowed by the fish at the bottom of the Mediterranean Sea and abiding within the entombment of that fish presumed to be dead. Can you imagine the moment that the sailors, if they ever got a chance to see Jonah again on the earth, what they must have thought? This guy has come back from the dead. We threw him out in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea in the worst storm we've ever seen. He walks upon the earth and becomes a famed evangelist in Nineveh. What what is this God? (laughs) Can you imagine what it would have been their heart's response to seeing Jonah alive and upright and partially in his right mind? Doing the work of God in Nineveh? Can you imagine? They would have thought he would have been someone who came back from the dead and Jesus says, you're on to something. When you see that fish three days and three nights at the bottom of the Mediterranean Sea with Jonah presumed dead in the entombment of that fish and that fish then on that third day spitting him out upon the seashore to accomplish the mission that he was sent to accomplish, I want you to see the Son of Man who was buried three days and three nights and who fought off the underworld of himself. And in so doing, on the third day, rose again in completion of his mission to answer the call that the Father had placed upon him many days previous, even centuries and eons and ages before within the decree of God. Do you see, Jesus took a false and runaway, ill-directed prophet, and he said, there's something in that story that has a lot to do with what I've come to tell you. Oh no, I'm not like Jonah. I didn't forsake the call. There wasn't a need for a storm and no one had to throw me overboard because of the consequences of my sin. But I, Jesus, was thrown overboard for the consequences of your sin because it's your sin that's called the storms, calls the storms in your life. And it's your sin that should cause you to be thrown overboard 
into the condemnation of the netherworld. But it's Jesus who willingly threw himself overboard for the purposes of conquering our sin and our death, receiving and absorbing the full penalty of God on our behalf. And it was Jesus who wasn't spit out and vomited out by the fish on dry land. It was Jesus through the power of his Father and the power of the work of the gospel who walked forth from the tomb and the angel who gives us testimony with regards to its message. Do you see, this is what's remarkable about the newness of life that comes in walking in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That on every page of the text of Scripture we find that it's telling us one essential message. Christ crucified. His death, His burial, and His resurrection. And it shows us that He is indeed the Redeemer. The one who goes down for us so that we can be the ones who walk upon the shore who experience the light of resurrection for those who he says are new creatures in Christ, that the old is passing away and yes, the new has come. Change is slow. It takes all of us a really long time. But as you can see in the gospel, God never gives up. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we... Praise your name. For no one could have written a story, even a story as fantastic as the one in which we've just read. No one could have conceived of such wild adventure except you. And you teach us in the word that truth really is stranger than fiction. That in the stories that seem so unbelievable, there is the very center of the thing most believed, the gospel itself. Today, Father, in our midst, there are undoubted storms. There are those who have the lot falling to them, who feel as if they must be thrown overboard. And today, Father, I pray, that in the moment where they're about to be thrown, I pray that they hear a splash. And the splash they hear is not them, but Jesus for them. The one who went down on their behalf and the one who was raised that they might walk in newness of life. Father, work this into our hearts until we repent and believe the gospel. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.